Hi there, this is Jim Johnson. I am the project manager for the Star Trek Adventures role-playing game published by Modifius Entertainment, and you are listening to Trek Untold. And welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. During the pandemic, a lot of folks dived deep into gaming. Whether it was video games or traditional board games, folks found new ways to spend their time and escape reality for at least just a little while. I started playing Dungeons and Dragons for the first time ever with some friends, and I am still on that campaign right now, in fact, and having a whole lot of fun doing it. And by the way, in case you're wondering, I'm playing as a tabaxi artificer because of course I am. Come on. Star Trek is no stranger to games and gaming, with their first role-playing game being released by the prolific company known as FASA back in the early 80s. Today, Modifius Entertainment has Lacan and produces Star Trek Adventures, which has been heralded as the best Star Trek RPG to date. But as a relative noob to the world of role-playing games, and also a lover of all things Trek, I wanted to learn more about this game and see if it's something that I might be into. In my research, that led me down the road to meeting this week's guest, Jim Johnson. Jim is the project manager at Modifius Entertainment and oversees the Star Trek Adventures role-playing game. Thankfully, he's also a lifelong Trekkie and equally a lifetime expert in role-playing games. So in this episode, we're going to see if we can roll a natural 20 to learn not only all about Jim and discover how he went from scribbling notes on a character sheet as a kid to shaping one of the most expansive Star Trek games ever as an adult, as well as just how the heck Star Trek Adventures works. So get your uniform pressed and ready. We're about to do some role-playing here and learn all about Star Trek Adventures. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining at higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in video format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash nerdnews today. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff, so you might want to take a look too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom, however way you like to get it. Now, without further ado, let's bring in this week's guest and get this episode started. Computer, beam in this week's guest. 
And welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining us, we've got the project manager at Modifius Entertainment for all the Star Trek Adventure role-playing games, Mr. Jim Johnson. Jim, how's it going today? Doing great, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me on. Happy to be here. I am very, very curious about this game. Uh, I actually first found out about this game through the miniatures, in fact, and I didn't realize there was a game attached to it until later on. So uh, <laughs> I'm very curious about learning more about it. Uh, you were kind enough to send me one of the rule books as well to kind of dip my toes into it, get my feet a little bit wet. Uh, we got a lot to discuss with this game, but let's start at the beginning, which I do with all my guests here. And Jim, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, boy, my earliest memory of Star Trek has to be in the uh, mid-70s. I was uh, just a little kid, and uh, I had a little teeny tiny three-inch black and white portable television that had one of the old uh, metal aerials that you could fold out and, uh, and, and put up. And it was actually in New York. Uh, I was living on Governor's Island at the time. And uh, if I if, if the wind if the weather was just right and the sky was clear and I aimed that aerial in just the right direction, I could pick up a really grainy black and white uh, rerun of the original series. So me and my friends would play um, uh, a landing party in the uh, on the playground. Right. We, we would uh, we would pretend we're, uh, you know, Kirk and Spock and McCoy and uh, we'd run around and play on the playground and uh, we'd wa- try to watch a little bit of an episode if we were able to get it at the right time on reruns. Uh, so that is definitely my earliest memory is uh, is that. And then tied into that is, uh, I think, one of the first science fiction books I ever read was one of the old photo novels that uh, I think Bantam Books published. And and I can't remember which one it was. It was either the Galileo 7 or uh, City on the Edge of Forever. It was one of those two. I can't remember. I mean, I've got them all. I I bought them later in life (laughs) because I had lost the original copies. And and I just I can't remember which one it was. I think it might have been Galileo 7, but... uh, that just might be because that was one of my favorite episodes and that one stuck in my head. So um, that, that's my earliest memory of Star Trek. Playing on the playground, watching the black and white, and then uh, um, the, the photo novel. <laughs> that's really funny you bring up those old photo novels, too. That's like such a peculiar thing. I feel like mm-hmm. kids today, I mean, that's, and that's not from my generation either, really, but I feel like kids today especially would be like, what the heck is this thing? Why, is it, why are there photos of little comic book bubbles all over them? It's so bizarre. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, it's, I, think, I think there's a style, there's a name for that style. I think it's called Fumetti. Because uh, I seem to remember reading a like a man like an ancient uh, fumetti about and, and John Cleese was the was the photo and he he like did a whole series of pictures and then they put the you know the words the word bubbles in there so it was like comic books but with like pictures instead and it was just it was really strange but uh, um, cool stuff. So you already mentioned that you were born in New York, so that covers that question here. But uh, what about your parents? I mean, did they do creative stuff or were they just doing you know, something else? Uh, no, and I'll, I'll go back a little bit. I was actually born in South Dakota, uh, but my dad was in the service. My dad was in the Navy and then the Coast Guard. And, uh, you know, South Dakota being landlocked, there's really not much need for the Navy or the Coast Guard in, in uh, South Dakota. So we moved up and down the East Coast all my life. And uh, we just ended up uh, at the time Governor's Island was a was a Coast Guard base and um, lived there a lot. Um, my dad was career military. So he was uh, not to say that military people are not creative, but my dad was not particularly creative. Um, and he was just focused on his career and, uh, you know, being an engineer and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, this was the seventies, right? So mom worked too. So my sister and I were latchkey kids, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, we, we made it work and we, we had, you know, we had fun as family, but, uh, um, I think of, of everybody in my family and my extended family, I think myself and one other cousin are, are the creative writer types and everybody else is, is not particularly creative and, and you know that's that's fine that's just how it worked out <laughs> now did you do a lot of writing as a kid was that something you wanted to go into did you know you wanted to be a writer when you grew up uh no not really i 
I, I thought, uh, in high school, I took a lot of language classes. I took uh, uh, Spanish, French, and uh, Latin, and then I took German in college. And I, I figured I'd be a uh, no Klingon in there. No, because I mean, back in the seventies, I don't think a lot of people really spoke Klingon because it hadn't been invented yet, right? <laughs> Mark Oakland hadn't invented the language yet. Um, but uh, but I was, I, I guess, a latent polyglot because uh, I remember in high school, you know, of course, at, at the time, everybody was expected to take the uh, the um, the military training, right? The ASVAB. And uh, and see if you'd be you know if, if the military could get their claws into you and and, and bring bring you to the service, and uh, I tested really well for like languages, and they took me to a special um, to a special uh, a test. Like it, it was like you take the ASVAB, and you, if you do well in the ASVAB, then you, they look at what your proficiencies are. And there was a another language test. I think it was called the D Lab at the time. I don't even remember now, but it was like you know to test your aptitude for for picking up foreign languages, right? And uh, so, you know, the, the recruiter came to the house, of course, because that's what they did at the time. And he drove me into the city to go to, to the to the where, wherever they did the test. And there's like 20 kids in there along with me. And we all took the test. And I think I tested in the like top five percentile in that class. And so when I was graduating, the all the recruiters like I mean, it was it was Air Force, Navy and uh, uh, Army were like, yeah, we'd really love it if you joined. And uh, become an interpreter and uh, we'll take you to, you know, you go to um, immersion training in California or something. And then we'd put you on a, you know, immersion. I, I mean, it was the Air Force, I think, was the one I was most curious because, like, they would have put me in a in like a spy plane or something flying over Russia. You know, but I was like, yeah, <laughs> at the time I was like, I'm not doing the military for another 20 years because we'd already spent all that time as a military family moving every three or four years. And I, I think I wanted something different with my life. So then when did writing actually become a part of the writing? Class, yes, right? writing. Oh, yeah, that thing. Um, <laughs> writing. I, I don't think I got the writing bug until high school. And and I, I had to do, you know, the requisite number of book essays and book reports and that kind of thing. And I wrote a long, detailed um, essay about uh, General Stonewall Jackson from the Confederacy at the time. And um, somehow my guidance counselor got a hold of it. I don't know how, you know, how it worked out or whatever. And he called me into the office one day and I was like, oh, what, am I in trouble or something? And he's like, no, I read your your report on General Jackson. And I thought it was really, really good. Have you thought about, you know, pursuing more writing? And I was like, at the time, you know, I was, you know, 17 graduating from high school. I didn't know anything from anything. Right. But uh, um, I was like, no, I haven't really thought about it. But uh, I took I took his cue. And then when I went to started going to college, I took a couple creative writing classes and surprisingly did really good or, you know, got good remarks on them from my from my professor and uh, some of the students and just kind of dabbled with that. And, uh, and then just kept pursuing it, you know, seriously as, as, as I continued on through college and then into a professional career um, and then getting into like, uh, you know, uh, fiction writing and freelance writing and just went on from there. So I, I can't say that like, you know, I loved, I always loved to read. Um, even when I was um, when I couldn't read, like I was always flipping through books and wanting to read. And uh, uh, so I've always had a love of the language and a love of words. But it wasn't until a little bit later, like high school, college ish, that I was like, oh, I can actually put words together and do things with them and, and tell stories and, uh, and, and and do something with it. And then, you know, and then even later, it was like, oh, wait, I can I can write stories and, and mail them off to magazines and to to contests and stuff. And people might actually buy them. Wait, 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 what? Now I can make money off of this. What? This is crazy. And uh, and, you know, of course, just went on from there. Now, were you a big like tabletop gamer or a Dungeons and Dragons player growing up as well? Or when yeah. did any of that stuff come into your life? 
Yeah, that was, uh, man, that had to be early 80s. I think the the first RPG I can remember playing was D&D, the old Red Box. Um, I think I think it must have been 81 or 82 buying that. And, and like, that was the amazing thing with my friends. It's like, ooh, what are we going to do with this? And the old, uh, the old, I think, gosh, I think they were yellow character sheets. I remember going to Toys R Us back when Toys R Us was a thing. And, and Toys R Us actually sold the hardcover um, like Fiend Folio and Monster Manual and Monster Manual 2 and stuff. And like, you can actually buy that stuff at, at a Toys R Us, which was, you know, unreal as, as things, you know, as, as time went on. But uh, yeah, it was the Red Box D&D was, was my introduction into the hobby. Uh, and then from there, pretty rapidly, my, my fan, friends found, um, we got into Star Frontiers and we got into Marvel Superheroes and Boot Hill. And then we kind of like moved out our Gamma, Gamma World, I think a little bit. Um, and then we got out of TSR because like, I mean, TSR was the, the, the company <laughs> at the time, right? It was like, it was TSR and everybody else. And then just, you know, continue to play different games over the years from there. Uh, but yeah, it certainly D&D was the, was the gateway. Now, did you have like a character that was your main one for all the campaigns? And did this person survive? Oh, gosh, I have to remember. Yeah, you know, I was, I was such a, I was such a, a homer, right? I, I played, I played the stock human fighter. <laughs> that was, that was like my, my best character was my stock human fighter. And he, uh, he made it to level 16 and then we stopped the game. And, and went on to other stuff. And uh, I, I don't think he we only I only played him in one campaign, but that campaign went from level one to level 16. And then we kind of retired that game and, and went on to like Marvel and then Star Frontiers and then other games. So I, I can't say I played the same character over and over, um, although I will admit like the first five or six D&D characters I played, I think they were all human, all human fighters, which was like kind of like my my shtick for a while, because I because like some of my other friends wanted to do the elves and the, and the magicians and the rogues and that kind of thing. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But I, I think I'll just be the human fighter. Cause that's what I kind of got. And I, I had a big uh, love affair for um, uh, Pendragon and the Knights of Camelot and just that, that whole kind of mythology. And that's what that's, that was my sweet spot was the the human fighter that it fit right into the kind of, I didn't want to be a paladin. Cause I was just like, Hey, I didn't really like the paladin in the, in the rule set, but human fighter was like, that was, that was the kind of thing that I could, I could really latch onto. So did you do a lot of freelance writing for like fantasy? Did you do a lot of stuff for sci-fi? I mean, as you're coming up in the industry, what kind of stuff are you working on? Uh, well, you know what, what's interesting with the industry is uh, I, um, I, I was doing freelance writing and, and fiction writing mostly in the late nineties or very early two thousands, just trying to like, cause I was like, yeah, I was fresh out of college and just like, okay, what do I do now? You know, I had a, I had a day job, but like I, I wanted to get, get some writing going. And so I was doing the writing the short stories, sending them off to Asimov's and Analog and uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction and all the major markets at the time. And um, also, I was a big I was also a big gamer, right? So I was trying to get into the into the game industry somehow as a freelancer. And I remember um, when West End Games had the license to do Star Wars, they did a uh, I think it was like a quarterly adventure journal that was a, like a digest sized book that had adventures and characters and stuff in it. And they had an open submission policy. And I remember <laughs> I remember putting a submission together and like slaving over this submission for like weeks. And then I finally got it to a place where I was like confident enough to mail it off. And that was the day I learned that we, uh, that West End lost the license to Star Wars or, or they weren't going to do it anymore. And I was like, what? I, I spent all this time doing this submission and now they can't do anything with it. And I was I was just crushed because I, I had realized that I had dithered too long 
on it and didn't, you know, send it and take my shot at it. So that, that kind of taught me that uh, if I want to do something, I need to not kind of like sit on it. I need to get, just, you know, get on with it, you know? Um, but then I, you know, once I got more into the, into the, involved in the industry, it was like, I, I really tried to keep an eye on what was, what companies were doing, what, and what options were available and what opportunities were there. And uh, in the early 2000s, uh, Decipher Incorporated uh, had the license for the Lord of the Rings RPG and the Star Trek RPG. And I start uh, Lord of the Rings is probably my number two um, passion as far as like intellectual properties and and things that I'm really really interested in besides Star Trek. And and so I applied to be a, a freelance um, playtest coordinator for the game because I wanted to get into it from the ground uh, running and just to, like start getting into the rules and getting into the game and, and like seeing where I could contribute. And did well with that and. Um, I wrote some fan stuff on the side just because I love the game. So I was like, oh, I'll make some characters, you know, based on the game rules. And I'll, you know, write a couple scenarios and stuff and, and just put them, we were just putting them up online for other fans to enjoy, right? We weren't selling them or anything. Um, but that caught the eye of the line developer at the time. And I, I used that to say, look, I, I'm writing for the game informally. Do you have any opportunities on any upcoming books that that you need a freelance writer for and he was like yeah i got i got you know here's an opportunity you know he gave me a small assignment on uh on one of the books and i you know i, I made sure to do well with that and just went on from there and did a, got, did a bunch of writing for the lord of the rings game um unfortunately some of it didn't get published because uh, decipher uh went under uh you know within a couple of years <laughs> within a couple of years and which is unfortunate because like i was just starting to make connections with the people who were doing the star trek game because I, I was thinking, what, what a great opportunity to do both writing for Lord of the Rings and for Star Trek all under the same company, right? That was, that was kind of like a sweet place to be. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't work out. And um, uh, so that, that was, I guess, kind of a missed opportunity to really get into Star Trek at the time. Um, but then from there, I just kind of dabbled with uh, other games. I did a little bit of work for Shadowrun and a couple of indie, couple indie games and uh, some other stuff I can't remember off the top of my head that I, I probably should remember, but I don't. Uh, but I, I kind of like, you know, kept my finger in the pulse of the RPG industry and just kind of like kept an eye on it. But I, I'm not like a lot of gamers where like I don't love all games, and, which is kind of to my detriment because that, that limited the opportunities that I had to work. But I also know that like if I'm not passionate about a game, it's really hard for me to like get into it because like I know that like and this is true for free, freelance writing, too, especially if you're doing like tie in writing, like if you want to write for different properties. Like if you want to write a Stargate novel or a, uh, a Dragonlance novel or, you know, any kind of novel, you've got to learn, you, you either have to know the lore going into it or you have to learn it quickly. Right. And um, it got to the point where I was like, okay, if I want to write, you know, for the Stargate RPG, I need to make sure I watch all the TV shows. I need to read all the novels. I need to understand it as much as I understand Star Trek. And it got to the point where like, there were opportunities offered to me and I was like, uh, it's going to be so much work for me to to learn the property properly in order to write it that I just don't have the time you know to it to devote to it to do to do it justice and I didn't want to give the line editors or the line developers you know a false sense of um you know competence I was like I was like I you know I'm, I'm appreciative of the work opportunity but I can't do it because I just don't have the knowledge in my head to write it confidently so Star Trek eluded you at that point in your career, but at what point mm -hmm. did it actually get to join up with you? I mean, was it was it basically Modiphius? Is that when you got your first chance to really work in Trek? Uh, not quite. So uh, Star Trek, what was neat about Star Trek is um, in the, was, was this 90s, was it as, as early as 96? I can't remember. No, it must have been 97. 
uh, Simon and Schuster, who has the who has the license to do Star Trek novels, right? Licensed Star Trek novels and short stories. They decided to um, do a short story contest called Strange New Worlds. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to open that up to fans all around the all around the actually I think it was around the United States. I don't think it was around the world. I think it might have been U.S. and Canada only, just because of rights and licensing issues. Um, but what they wanted to do is they wanted to kind of carry on the tradition from Paramount, where you know when Next Gen and DS9 and Voyager were on the air, the the producers of those shows wanted to open up their script submission. Um, options to fans like if, if you were a fan and you thought you could write an episode of star trek you could write a spec script and mail it in and if it was good enough they would invite you in to pitch um for for stories and that's how a lot of writers got their start you know including ron d moore and, and a whole bunch of others i'm sure um I, I just don't remember a lot of the names off the top of my head um but uh simon and schuster want to kind of continue that tradition of like opening it up opening opening up the 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 options to fans and so they created this contest called strange new worlds and what it was was like if you think you can write a professional grade short story, write it, mail it in. The editors will review all the submissions, and then they would take like the best fifteen or twenty stories and publish it in an anthology, right? And and so the first couple of years that they got, they were really popular, and they got uh, like I don't know, like five thousand submissions every year or something. Like I remember the editor uh, Dean Wesley Smith, he would post pictures on at, at the time. I guess it was AOL. <laughs> At the time, that's dating me quite a bit, I'm sure. But uh, he would post pictures of his of his uh, like his mail room just stacked with envelopes and envelopes and envelopes of specs of spec stories that had been mailed in. So like uh, so, but he had you know plenty of options to fill the anthology, and uh, they did Strange New Worlds for ten years. So they went did it from '97 to 2005 or six or something, and um, I got into the contest a little late because I, I I like uh, a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Summers. He got us he got a story. Uh, into uh, Strange New Worlds five, and uh, I was like, "Well, that's awesome!" You know, congratulations. And uh, by the time I realized it, I had just missed the submission period for Strange New Worlds six, but I started writing, knowing that there was going to be a seventh one. And so I submitted some stories in, for Strange New Worlds seven, and was fortunate enough that one of them got got picked and published. And then I went on to uh, get one in nine and ten as well. So I ended up writing three short stories for Star Trek, uh, and published in these anthologies. Um, and then I kind of translated that into, um, you know, cause at, at that time, uh, Simon and Schuster was publishing two mass markets a month. Uh, cause I, of course at the time, Star Trek was super huge, right? Voyager was on, the movies were coming out, Star Trek was a huge deal. And so they were doing two mass market paperback releases every month, which meant that the editors could kind of take chances on newer writers and give them an opportunity to do novels if, you know, if they had the chops to do it, um, but so I, I was pitching novel ideas to the editors and I, and they were also doing a lot of anthologies, like short story anthologies. So I just I just kept picking away at it. And finally, um, uh, Marco uh, Palmieri, who was the primary Star Trek editor at the time, he invited me to write a short story for the um, the Mirror Universe anthology that they came out with, uh, Sh uh, Shards and Shadows, I think. And uh, so I took it, I took that opportunity because it, it'd be really it was a really cool opportunity to write a, uh, a novella in the mirror universe, right. Which was really cool. And it, and it tied into a couple of the novels that they were doing at the time. Um, but you know, so, so yeah, so I, I had those writing chops or had those writings experiences with star Trek. And that's what led me to go to a bunch of conventions as a, as a writer, especially a shore leave convention here in Baltimore. Um, that, that was really like the primary um, star Trek writing convention for a while, because everybody who lived in New York, especially the editors, 
could drive down for the weekend from New York to, to Maryland and uh, interact, interact with the fans for the weekend. And of course, I was here in Virginia, so it just worked out nicely that that's almost my, my hometown con, right? That's my local con. When uh, Strange New Worlds 7 came out, it turned out that like seven of the writers out of the 21 that were in that anthology were all here in the Northern Virginia area, right? So all seven of us went and we were like, oh, hey, you live down the street. You live over here. You live over here. So we actually started a writing group, uh, which is, you know, kind of beside the point. <laughs> but uh, that was just a fun experience because uh, I got to meet a lot of the big name Star Trek authors. I, I got to meet uh, Keith DeCanado and David Mack and uh, Kirsten Beyer before she went on to uh, Discovery. Uh, Dayton Ward, Kevin Dilmore, um, um, you know, Michael Jan Friedman, just all, all the big names of Star Trek novelists over the years were there. And, and I got to meet them and, and interact with them and eventually become friends with a bunch of them. And, and that was really important because, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but that was really kind of laying the foundation for not just a professional uh, you know, connections, but also, um, you know, social you know, friendships. And it was all based on, Star- it was all thanks to Star Trek. Like if I hadn't gotten involved in Star Trek, uh, you know, at a professional level doing fiction writing, I would have never met all these people and, um, and interacted with them. So I, I'm really grateful that, you know, Simon and Schuster did that contest because that really brought a lot of people into Star Trek that might not have been able to otherwise. Uh, so we absolutely grateful for that. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise-D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live. And that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate. That's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated 
to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Jim, let us jump into our Star Trek Adventures talk now, and you know we're talking mm-hmm. about your career as well. So, uh, you yeah. know, we just now got you writing in Star Trek. How does that evolve into you now working with Modiphius and uh, eventually becoming the role that you're in right now? Sure, that's a great question. So, harkening uh, back to um, the Lord of the Rings RPG, uh, I was a freelance um, playtest coordinator on that, and it just worked out that one of the other playtest coordinators was Jason Duraal. And Jason Duraal, after um, we finished our work on the Lord of the Rings game. He continued uh, to have a career and, and continues even today to have a career in the RPG industry where he works on a huge number of games. He's worked on all kinds of stuff over the over the years. And he for a while there, he was the, the project manager and line editor for Conan at Modiphius. And he did a lot of work for Modiphius on Conan. And one day, because he and I you know, maintained a, a, a relationship, you know, professional relationship over the years, just kind of keeping keep base, touching base with each other. And one day he emailed me, he said, hey, Jim, um, I think you need to put together your your resume and your CV and send it to the folks at Modiphius because Modiphius just got the license to a a really cool game that I think you're going to like. I can't tell you what it is because you're not under NDA yet, but you need to send your your contact information to to the president. And then he he signed off the email with Live Long and Prosper, which kind of like gave me the clue. (laughs) Like he he didn't tell me outright that they had gotten the Star Trek license, but he kind of like gave me the clue. So I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, I, I, I'm grateful that Jason remembered me and, and, and tipped me off that something was coming. And so, in, I guess this was uh, early 2016, I sent my contact info to, to Modiphius and they had, they had gotten a license to Star Trek and they were just starting to develop the RPG. Nathan, uh, Nathan Dowdell was their primary um, uh, systems designer for the 2D20 system. And so he was already working on the game and they already had, you know, some, some writers starting to work on the core book and some adventures uh, for the playtest that we wanted to do. And I got involved uh, pretty quickly in, in doing some work on the core book. And then uh, just because I brought, you know, my professional connections that I made through the Star Trek writing circles, um, you know, I told uh, I told the folks, look, I have, I, I am friends with Dayton Ward. I am friends with Scott Pearson. I'm friends with all these different people. Do you want any of them to, do you want me to reach out to them and see if any of them would like to be involved in the RPG as well? And they were like, you know, yes, absolutely. We want, you know, Dayton Ward is the you know, New York Times bestselling author of a whole bunch of Star Trek stuff. And uh, Scott Pearson is, has been the, uh, the primary copy editor for the Star Trek novels for, I guess, 10 years now or something. And so like in the back of my mind, I knew if I, if I could convince them to join me on this crazy trip, um, we would have uh, a little bit more credibility, not that we didn't, but we would have even more credibility with CVS 
knowing that we had these people already involved because like they already knew the drill working with CBS and Simon and Schuster about like the style guides and and how to manage the 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 licensing relationship and stuff. So I was able to bring them on board, uh, which was great because that that really helped us out. You know, Scott, you know, helped us develop the style guide for the game, and and Dayton and Scott did the initial um, the initial uh, um, design document for the Living Campaign, which you know started as a playtest document and then became the Living Campaign, and then that you know morphed and grew into what is now the Shackleton Expanse book. Um, but that all that groundwork started, in, I guess, twenty sixteen when we all got involved in the game. And, you know, from there, you know, I started off as just a freelance writer, writing some chunks of content for the core book. Um, but because I'm a, a technical editor by trade, um, I told the line manager at the time, you know, look, look, I've, I've got these editing skills. Is there anything that I can help you with from an editing standpoint, not just a writing standpoint, but from an edit editing standpoint? And uh, pretty rapidly, he was like, yes, I'm completely uh, overwhelmed trying to get just the core book done because we knew that we wanted to get the core book out for Gen Con in 2017. And so there was just a huge amount of work involved in trying to do that. But what they also want, what Modiphius wanted to do was they wanted to release a uh, adventure anthology at the same time, right? Just to give the core book and then a, a bunch of adventures at the same time. Uh, and that anthology is, uh, uh, These Are the Voyages was the first one. And so um, Sam, Sam Webb, who was the project manager at the time for Star Trek, he said, look, why, why don't I give you these adventures? Why don't you edit the adventures and kind of put this book together? And then he could focus on the core book. I was working on the adventure book. And so I, I pretty quickly got into a place where I was doing freelance writing and editing and proofreading and just kind of like trying to help wrangle the adventure book while everybody else was working on the core book. And uh, that just, you know, that kept me busy for a while. And from there, I just, you know, did the freelancer dance of uh, making myself invaluable, <laughs> you know, by, by, you know, being, being on time with my work, hitting my deadlines, delivering good work and just being, a consistent, uh, you know, positive voice for the, for the fans too, right? Because I was pretty well connected to the fan base already because we'd all, we'd all been doing Star Trek RPGing for so long. Um, but eventually, did enough work on the line as a as a line editor and re and writer that uh, uh, in 2019 they they uh, Sam got promoted to another position in the company, and then they they promoted me to project manager for overall responsibility of the line. And uh, and so that's where I am now is I'm, I'm responsible for the overall creative direction of the of the Star Trek RPG. And uh, and it's awesome. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a huge amount of work, but it's, it's really rewarding, too, because I get to talk to people like you and to the fans and everything else and uh, and see how much people are, are appreciating the, the game. So um, that's I mean, that's a really, really long winded path of getting here. But uh, well, it's been a long um, winding the, road for you. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a long it was a long winding road, but uh, a lot of really cool touchstones along the way, and it all kind of led to here. So I'm I'm just grateful to be at the right place at the right time for once. Like I feel like my professional career, I've always just like kind of just missed opportunities. You know, like I either didn't have the right skill set at the time, or I was you know just not quite at the right place. But like when uh, when Modiphius got the Star Trek license, I was like, okay, I, I was in the right place at the right time, and uh, and it just it grew from there. So uh, uh, it's it's been a fun ride so far. Yeah, I mean, well, you never lost face of the heart. That's what matters. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> and you know, what I was gonna say is, I think it's really cool that you know this whole journey too. You're doing this with a lot of your friends, a lot of folks you've written stuff with. Uh, you know, yeah. your, your writers group essentially, you're all bringing them on board with you. So that's gotta be really cool to basically be doing your dream job, working in gaming, working on Star Trek, and doing it with people that you know and like. And that's that's a pretty sweet gig. That it is a it is 
it is a sweet gig. I will admit. I mean, I, I can't, I can't lie. This is, this is a great deal uh, of, of fun and it's helped immeasurably. Like I'm, I'm grateful. And I don't, I don't tell them often enough, partly because I haven't seen them for two years now because of COVID, but um, I'm, I'm really grateful that Dayton and Scott both agreed to come out, come on board as early as they did. Um, because it's so much, it's so much more fun to do this when you have friends to work with, right. When you're able to do stuff together and collectively do it. Um, as opposed to working with everybody who's new. Like I, I've made plenty of friends, you know, a lot of the writers that are working on Star Trek now, uh, I would consider a friend, even though we've really only interacted online for the most part. I see, I saw a couple of them at Gen Con the last couple of years, uh, not last year, obviously, but COVID's really, thrown, COVID's really screwed everything up right? and I'm, I'm really kind of done with it, but uh, uh, I'm sure a lot of us are, right? But uh, yeah, it, it really helps to have a lot of um, friends involved. Uh, and it helps too. The, the fan base is amazing. Um, I, I'm so grateful to the fans to be responding to this game as well as they have. I think um, that's that's half of it, or more than half of it, easily. Like if, if the fans weren't passionate about this game, I don't think we'd be doing it, uh, honestly. Because because uh, I mean, you need that you need that healthy fan base to be supporting the game in a variety of different ways. And uh, I'm just grateful that they're doing it. So, Jim, I know you got a lot to tell me about some upcoming releases, and we're going to get to that mm-hmm. a little bit, but, you know, I'm pretty much new to the world of Star Trek Adventures, and I know there's a lot of sure. folks in my audience who also have no idea about it. This might even be their first yeah. time hearing about the game. Um, so I want to kind of get into some of the little nitty-gritty, if you will, about what Star mm-hmm. Trek Adventures is, and we'll work our way up to all the new releases that the hardcores want to know about, because I know you got some really epic stuff to announce, but, um, <laughs> yeah, so let's just start at the yeah. beginning here. Like, what is the story? What's the timeline? What's the universe for Star Trek Adventures? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So Star Trek Adventures, it's the, and for those who don't know, like, so Star Trek as an intellectual property, of course, has been around for 55 years. And and Star Trek has had a number of different iterations of a role-playing game over its long lifetime. So uh, I think there's been like six or seven, like, official licensed uh, Star Trek RPGs, including uh, uh, FASA, Decipher, Last Uniform Games, uh, Modifius Now. Um, Amarillo Design Bureau, ADB, they have a, a license to the original series uh, that I, I don't know how that license worked, but they're still able to do stuff based on the original series um, in perpetuity, as far as I can tell. Uh, and then there's, there was like two other ones in the early 70s. I don't remember the names of uh, Horizons, maybe, and then maybe there was one other one. I don't know for sure, but uh, Decipher was the last one for a while, and they lost the license in the early 2000s. And then from early 2000s up to 2016, like nobody had the Star Trek license. And um, I, I think at that time, I think Voyager had ended, Enterprise had kind of come and gone. There weren't any new movies. So like the, the property was kind of on a down, on, on, a, on a down angle for a little while. And then the movies, the JJ verse movies came out and then things started to tick up a little bit. Um, and then, so Modifius picked up the license. And so now this is the, the latest version of the RPG even though it's each each version of the RPG has had, has its own system, right? Each, each different company, different system. Uh, so this is a two D twenty system, which is Modifius's house system uh, that they use that they adapt for use in different properties. So uh, Conan, Dune, Infinity, um, John Carter, Mars, and Star Trek all use the two D twenty system. But Nathan, the the system developer, um, has been able to to significantly adapt the the core game system to each property to make them feel unique uh, right so there's some overlap in terms of like how the basic mechanics work but like star trek it feels uniquely star trek and conan feels uniquely conan and dune feels uniquely you know so so on and so forth so star trek adventures as a game 
is really designed to allow you to play Star Trek in any era, right? So from, from earliest Enterprise all the way to Discovery in the 32nd century, anywhere in between, you can use this core rule set and do literally anything you want with it Star Trek-wise. The rules themselves don't change. Oh, wow. um, but for I didn't the, realize it went all the way to 32nd century, too. That's, that's crazy. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, because like I said, the rules don't change because the, the, the game was really designed to be to emulate Star Trek on screen on your at your table, right? So if you want to, if you want the Star Trek experience at your game table, whether it's virtual or in person, you know, face to face with your friends, um, the game the game system allows you to do that, right? It's, it's narrative focused, it's um, drama heavy. It, it gives you the opportunity to kind of like tweak the drama and tweak the the narrative so that you can get the most you know dramatically cool thing to happen at the table. Um, and, and but it's not really time dependent. It's not setting or era dependent. You can play original series. You can play next gen DS9, whatever. Um, but the conceit that we had going into it is that we knew that we wanted to pick a particular part of the timeline to kind of focus the book and, and, and use the uh, the design aesthetic. Like if you look at the core book and actually most of the books, uh, they they use the uh, the next gen DS9 era uh, Elcar's design, right? That Michael Okuda created for the for the computer panels. Uh, which looks great on on screen. Um, I know it's a little hard to read. In fact, that that was one of my main complaints, honestly, <laughs> about the game is that we're we're putting light text on a black background, and that's really super hard to read in in print. But it, you know, it is what it is. But uh, uh, so what we did is we decided to set the set the default era of the game in twenty three seventy one, which is like early DS nine. It's right about the time of Star Trek Generations. So the Enterprise has the Enterprise D has been destroyed by the um the Duras sisters in the movie and so the flagship of the uh, the flagship of the federation is gone right and so the the kind of the 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 marketing you know not to get too businessy but the marketing angle for the core book was starfleet needs new heroes because the the enterprise d's been destroyed there's no flagship anymore what new crews can come into starfleet and go on their own adventures and do their own thing uh so we said 2371 because there was just some cool stuff going on like with the dominion threat rising uh, because of DS9, and you just, there's just there's just a wealth of story potential. You know, the Voyager went missing in the Badlands in 2371 as well. So there's just all these potential plot hooks already just sitting there waiting for us to to play with. And so we went with that as kind of like the the default setting for the game. Even though you know, if you looked beyond the L cars and, and beyond the just kind of like the default setting, you would know that you could take the rule system and run any era it, like if, you, if you're an original series fan you could do that you, you wanted to do voyager whatever um so that was just kind of like a you know we knew we wanted to kind of like set um some sort of date in mind to kind of like you know launch it off from there uh so that's that's what we did uh with the at least with the timeline but i, I always try to tell fans like don't just look at it and think it's an it's a next gen game because it looks next gen right because it's got the l cars design uh, we've been careful to create uh, distinct layouts for the original series and Enterprise and uh, uh, Next Gen, and even we're working on Discovery and Picard stuff now. So we're adding some, we're going to be adding some new layouts here, so that you even just looking at the products, you can see what era it fits in, um, and it's all it's all using the same rule set. I don't want to keep saying the name of the rivals games, if you will, but let's just say, just like in D D, you know, you've got your different classes. You know, like for example, mm-hmm. D D, you can be an elf, you can be a dwarf, you can be a gnome, you can be a tabaxi. And you got your subclasses. You can be an artificer. You can be a paladin. You can be a wizard, or you know whatever classification they have there. Uh, so, what are the equivalents of that in the Star Trek Adventures game? I mean, what kind of characters can you play as? What can they do? And uh, is it limited to only Starfleet? Mm-mm. Yeah. Okay, that's a great question. So, um, 
the the core book itself is is Starfleet focused. Like the first core book, the first core book that came out in the in 2017 is Starfleet focused. And there's eight different species in there that you can play from, and they're all traditional um, Star Trek species. You got the humans, Vulcans, Trills, Andorians, Tellarites, uh, a couple other ones, Bajorans, a couple other ones. So if if you're familiar with the show, you'll know what the species are. You can go you know play one of those. So you, you pick your species, and then um, as far as like, there's not really any classes in the game. Um, the the conceit is that if you're playing Starfleet, you're playing one of the bridge officers that you've seen on the show. So you could play the captain, the first officer, the chief engineer, the chief medical officer, uh, chief of operations, you know, the, the pilot, chief, you know, pilot, um, counselor. Uh, so if you look at like Next Gen or DS9, you know, those roles that you see the, the main cast playing, those are the ones that you would most likely pick from. Um, since the game is launched, uh, we, we added a, a Klingon core rulebook. So if you wanted to play the entire game experience strictly from a Klingon point of view, you can do that. And they, there's a couple of different roles in there where they have a, a ship's cook is very important. So if you want to play a ship's cook as your main character, by all means, go for it. Um, uh, and then there's also, um, with the player's guide that's coming out pretty soon, we're, we added more roles into that. So if you wanted to play a non-Starfleet, non-Klingon role, like if you look at like uh, you know DS9 or uh, Voyager, where you had Neelix and Kess and Kira and Odo and Quark, where, who, who are very main, very much main characters, but they were not Starfleet, they were not Klingons. They had their own role at, at whatever they were doing, whether they were the chief constable or they were a, a, a merchant or a gambler or a um, you know a cook or a, a merchant, whatever. Um, we were adding all those roles into the game as well, so you could you could literally play, you know, you could do anything you wanted to with the game. Once that player, I said, once that player's guide comes out, the game's gonna be blown wide open because like the fans that want to play like independent traders, but in the Star Trek setting, they can do that. Uh, if you wanted to play like, you know, like a, a Firefly or, uh, I mean, even like a Star Wars smuggler kind of independent kind of game, you can do that now because, uh, you know, partly because Star Trek Picard really kind of presented that opportunity, right? Where you see ex-Starfleet officers and civilians kind of thrown together on the on the La Serena and off doing their adventure. And then, of course, with Star Trek Prodigy coming out, uh, that's, a, that's just a, a cast of random assorted kids thrown into a situation and all of a sudden they're off in, on an adventure. Right. And so that's, that's really kind of what we have evolved the game to be, but going back a little bit, it, the original conceit of the game was that you'd be playing bridge officers just like on next gen or on DS nine. And so the roles are kind of oriented to that. It's not a level based game. So it's not like D and D where you're earning experience points and, uh, and leveling up in power. Uh, Cause the, uh, the idea is that, um, you, you work your character through a life path as you're doing character generation. And when you come out of that life path, whether you're an ensign or a captain, you are a, a super hyper-competent Starfleet officer or Klingon warrior, right? If you're going through the life path as a Klingon. Um, and so your, your starting character is every bit as competent as like a Picard or Kirk or Worf or any, any of the other characters. And so that's, that's really kind of cool. Cause like one of my uh, challenges with D and D and not to pick on D and D, but um, like, Every D and D game I've ever played, things got really cool and interesting, like around level five or level seven ish. Like the, you get you get over that initial power struggle of like you're not powerful enough to do a lot, but you survive, and then you get to like level five and seven, you get some really cool powers, and then you can do stuff. Um, but but then like if you're if you're playing into that game, then you've got new people coming in. You know, do they start at level one and then they're behind the curve, or do you just try to like level them up as soon as possible? Whereas with Star Trek Adventures, you know 
whether you're an ensign or someone else is playing a lieutenant or you're playing a, a captain, the, the the power level of those characters is all pretty much the same, right? Um, they're they're like the captain's not going to outshine everybody all day long because they happen to be the captain. It's just like they've got different skill sets, and and you're all on about the same level, like you know, game mechanics wise. And, and what makes it different is just like what are you good at and what's important to you, what are your values, that kind of thing. So um, it, it's not. Uh, I mean, it's an RPG, obviously, because you're 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 doing collaborative storytelling. But it's not the kind of game necessarily where you go into it looking to get the next level or the next you know power level or the next talent or the next feat or whatever. Uh, it, it's, it's a very different perspective, and and I know a lot of folks have had some challenges with that coming from different games into Star Trek. They're, they're looking for the you know what's the next uh, what's the next perk that I can pick up or what's the next you know thing. And, you know, the other challenge with Star Trek, too, is uh, there's no money, right? right? There's no loot. There's it's, it's a, you know, primarily a... I was a just post- about to ask that, too. Like, you know, what, what are the yeah. possible rewards you can get in Starfleet besides a sense yeah. of pride for wearing a uniform? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, are, there are some mechanics about, like, how you can earn awards and you can earn commendations and that kind of thing. Um, but, like, the, the character improvement process is pretty modest, right? Like, you can earn milestones over the course of as you run adventures or as you play through adventures um, and as your characters, as your character goes through situations and tests their values, they can earn milestones along the way. And those milestones can translate into either like making uh, modest changes to your attributes and your, and your disciplines, you know, your skills or uh, swapping out talents, swapping out focuses and, and very like slowly improving your character. Um, but uh, as far as like, Oh, what's the next cool thing I can get? I mean, there, there are some mechanics for like getting new equipment or, you know, modifying equipment. Um, you can improve your supporting cast, right? So like, if you think about um, uh, O'Brien, right? Who started off life as a character on, on the Enterprise in the Next Generation and gradually grew into the lead, one of the lead characters of DS9, right? You could play a support, you could have that supporting character as part of your of your game. And instead of spending your, milestone improvements on yourself on your own character you can improve some of the supporting characters right so you can actually help mold the crew around you to become more competent and more capable and you can also improve your ship too right like you know star trek from the very beginning the the ship or whether it was the enterprise or the voyager or whatever the ship was almost a character unto itself and the game system uh, enables the ship and your teammates to, to help you uh, accomplish tasks and so you can actually spend some of your your uh, your, your, you know, your, uh, your milestones to improve the ship. So if you wanted to improve the ship to make it more capable, you can do that instead of working on yourself. So it, it's kind of a different uh, experience from a lot of the traditional RPGs that are out there. And uh, like I said, I, I know some folks have, have resisted that <laughs> or have been frustrated by that because they, they are still in the kind of the mindset of like, what's the next level up and what's the next cool stuff I can get for me. And, uh, it's more basically I mean, for, focused on the experience than it is the leveling up yeah. part of it, really. And experience is probably a bad word to use when discussing leveling up, but the experience of the play itself. Um, and right. I do think that's yeah. pretty cool that the starships are actually a pretty integral part of the gaming. That was something I was wondering mm-hmm. when I was like first looking at the game, and it didn't really occur to me that that would be a piece of it, but it's a pretty critical part of the game. It really is, yeah. Especially for like some of the, I mean, because the, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a 2D20 system. So the idea is that you're rolling 2D20 to, to attempt a task, and you can buy up to three more dice to, to help you out on like really complicated or challenging tasks. Um, but you can also get assists from either your teammates or, you know, your fellow crew members and the ship, the ship can often give you a, a D 20 to help you out as well in certain circumstances, because of course the, the ship 
the Federation ships, the Starfleet ships are just like this huge computer computer bank of knowledge, right? It's like it knows so much stuff. It, of course, it can help you in a lot of situations, uh, whether it's science related or, or flight dynamics or whatever. Um, so, yeah, oftentimes the ship can just, you know, give you that extra boost of uh, insight that you need to to, to accomplish, a, accomplish a task. And uh, I, I just love that mechanic. I think Nathan did a brilliant job putting that together. Uh, the assist mechanics, I, like I know in my games, when I'm running my games, the just the starship helping out the crew has has got them out of a whole lot of trouble <laughs> any number of times. Uh, where whereas if uh, you know if they didn't have the ship and they didn't have you know teammates to help them, then they might have been in in real trouble. But uh, um, yeah, so we really try to make sure that the ships are or are a key component of the. Um, of the overall experience. And we should add too that, you know, when we're talking about this experience here, the crew obviously goes on away missions, but uh, I assume that this also means that since the ship is such a big part of the game, that there's going to be like ship battles also as part of this, right? So, um, yeah. I mean, if there's, there's a, basically what I want to hear about is, uh, you can kind of explain how the combat works. That's my, my big thing is how, how does the combat system actually work in Star Trek Adventures? Yeah, so the combat system is, is pretty straightforward in terms of like it, it being similar to accomplishing tasks, right? You, uh, you, you do either opposed roles or there, there's a whole structure of, of combat that you go through. And, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you, if, if you hit or, you know, there's a whole litany of, of uh, potential tasks that different, different members of the crew can do different things during the course of a, uh, of a, of a ship combat. And so you like your commanding officer can support you, which makes it easier for you to, you know, manage the shields or manage the weapons or, or manage, uh, damage control, that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, if you inflict enough uh, stress, we call it stress, not damage. But if you inflict enough stress on your opponent, uh, you know they can either suffer just you know reduction in their shields, or if you do enough damage or stress, um, they suffer a breach. And breaches are where like you know things blow up on the ship, things get damaged, systems get damaged, and uh, and you just deal with it from there. Uh, so it's uh, it it, the, it it can get pretty um, granular it, depending on how much you want to get into it. Um, for the more narrativistic um, game masters, you can kind of like sidestep a, a lot of that and just kind of like narrate narrate your way through the combat. Uh, so it's not like necessarily like, um, you know, like Attack Wing or like a miniatures based game where you're really looking at the details. It's more abstract, uh, both both uh, personal combat and ship combat is more abstract where you're looking at uh, zone movement as opposed to really detailed movement and um you know you don't have to worry about firing arcs or uh, or positioning your ship that kind of thing it's, it's not it's not that level of detail um because uh, again we really try to focus more on the on the the dramatic potential and the cin- cinematic idea of of uh, um of a star trek um ship combat where it's not so much about like shield points and uh and and power distribution it's more about like dramatically doing stuff while you're um while you're working your way through it I mean, you use the word granular just now, and I think that's kind of a really great segue to my next question here because you know I'm pretty new to RPGs in general and tabletop board games, and uh, you know you were kind enough to send me a, a copy, a digital copy of that core rulebook, but that thing is like 375 pages long. It's not an exaggeration; it's that big. That's that's very daunting for someone who's very new to tabletop gaming, uh, and that's not even counting the other source books and all the different things for for aliens and other adventures, whatever you got going on. Um, so my question is, you know, how accessible is this game for someone like me who's just stepping into this world? I mean, how detailed, how much macro do I need to be to play Star Trek Adventures? <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm trying to think about the best way to answer this because I, I want to be really super positive, right? And but I also want to be realistic because we are five years into the game. We have learned a lot of lessons, like not just me as, and, and not just us in Star Trek, but like the whole company. 
right? When Star Trek came out, that was like, I think like the second or maybe the third game that, that Medifius had really developed from the ground up. And I think we've, we've learned some lessons from Star Trek along the way. <laughs> and I think like one of the, one of the common complaints and I'll, I'll just be transparent, right? It's okay. Um, one of the, one of the complaints about the core rule book is that um, there's a lot of rules in it, which is obvious because it's, it's necessary to have a lot of rules and options in there, but we, we could have done a better job organizing it and, 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 and putting the rules all in kind of in the same place so that it was easy to find them as opposed to having them scattered across, you know, 10 different chapters. And um, part of that is the byproduct of trying to get the game ready to go in time for Gen Con, right? There's just a, a natural production challenge of trying to get it done in time to get it printed and produced and shipped to, uh, to Indiana to get, to get it to Gen Con. Now, you know, that may sound like an excuse, but like at the time I was just a writer, I didn't know uh, any of this details, but um, so accessibility is, is good, especially if you focus on the basics and then build from there. Like there's a lot, there's, there's a couple of meta currencies in the game. Like you got thread, you got momentum and you got uh, determination points all of which can be used to manipulate the narrative structure of the game and to manipulate the circumstances of the scene so that you can make it easier for your players or more challenging for your players, or the players can actually, you know, create advantages. So like if they're in a situation, they can spend a couple of momentum points and say, Oh, you know, we happen to remember to bring our tricorders. So we'll spend a couple of momentum points to help us along the way. Or, um, you know, the game master can say, Oh, you know, I'm going to spend a couple of points of threat. And so not only are you on a, uh, a rusty catwalk, but now it's raining and now it's, you know, now the, and it's electrified and now you've got two angry Nausicans on the other side of it, getting ready to uh, shoot their disruptors at you, you know, so you can actually play with the drama quite a bit by spending or, or gathering these points. Um, but you don't have to do that initially, right? If you just get the basic task resolution down, you know, create, create your target number, pick the difficulty number and roll 2d20. If you just get that basics down, you could do tons of dramatic role playing with just that and not even worry about all the other subsystems that are in there. And then you can gradually add them in as you go. Um, and again, these are lessons that we learned along the way. And I think that's what kind of led us to the, to the Klingon core rule book is when we decided to do that core rule book, we had already had four years of experience creating more games, but also getting a lot of feedback from the fans and having an opportunity to do a lot of Q&A with the fans over the years on social media and just, you know, back and forth on, on discussion boards and stuff. And so when we did the Klingon book, we kind of did a top-down rewrite of, um, you know, first of all, we refocused it all to the Klingons, right? We took all the Starfleet references out. We rewrote all the examples to be Klingon-focused. And then we made I, I made sure to take the opportunity to, um, to, like, take all the rules all across the book and, like, condense them down to, like, three chapters. Uh, Sam Sam Webb and uh, Nathan Dowdell were the primary rules revisers on that, but with my mandate of like let's let's get it, let's let's condense it and clean it up a little bit. Like we didn't really change the rule set at all, right? But there was a couple minor tweaks to it. But so the rules in the Klingon core and the Starfleet core are essentially identical, except for like a, a different, slightly different um, character advancement system and some very light tweaks to the to the combat system that Nathan wanted to make. But what we did do significantly was was clean up the presentation so that it was much easier to read like we added more tables we added more examples um just to tidy it up a bit and, and i think you're going to see that in the tricorder set when that comes out because we we use I, I tried to cut and paste as much as i could from the Klingon book into the tricorder to make sure that it was as clear as possible but uh this is all a long-winded long-winded way of saying that the the game is accessible to a new gamer 
as long as you're diligent about not trying to like memorize the enormity of the rule set, um, you know, think of it as more of a toolkit and, uh, you know, start with the basics and then build from there as much as your group wants to handle, right? Like, like some groups are super granular and want the nitty gritty and they want the tactical combat and that kind of thing. And that's fine. Cause that just means you'll have to learn more of the game system, but a lot of game groups out there are really like, no, we just want the narrative drama and we want almost want to do like either like play by post and we're just doing text stories back and forth, or we just want the heavy duty um, role playing. And, you know, we might not even touch a dice in a session, right? We, we may go so we may go several sessions and not even roll any dice, but we're doing the RP and we're doing the role playing and we're going back and forth and telling dramatic stories that way. Um, so it just really depends on where your, where your group is um, along the spectrum there. I think, you know, by and large, the game doesn't get in your way um, unless, unless you want more from it than what, what you know, right? You just need to put the time into it, depending on what, what you want out of it. I mean, it sounds like what you're telling me is like the, the new Klingon core book is like Star Trek Adventures 1.2, version 1.2. Um, but, you know, we've seen games like D&D have, you know, they're up to like their fifth edition now. Warhammer 40K is mm-hmm. somehow up to their ninth, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is there a potential for Star Trek Adventures version 2.0 with maybe a more streamlined rule set or something that's like more inherently obviously about how to simplify the whole rules for someone who is new and then also yeah. keeping it still like granular for the folks who want to get really deep into the game? Is that is that something that's been discussed or thought about or considered for the future? Sure. We've, we've talked about all kinds of things for the game. I mean, partly just to, just to keep it, keep it alive and relevant. Right. And we've, we've got, I mean, we've got plenty of releases planned for the next, you know, two years already. And we're looking, we're looking beyond that. Uh, we haven't really seriously talked about a second edition yet. Uh, partly because the game system as it is, is, is solid. Uh, it, like I said, I, I know that the, the, the original core rule book could stand to be cleaned up, but like, how do we make that work in, in terms of like, you know, just, just practical budgetary type of stuff like you know because there's we we just did a reprint of it not too long ago and so we've got thousands of, of, of fresh copies out there and and we don't want to do a do a revision because then uh you know distributors and stores are going to be really really unhappy that they have all these books on their shelves that are now about to be obsolete and we certainly don't want to do that um but the um the like like you said the Klingon core rule book is is kind of like a I don't, I don't even want to say a revised edition because we didn't really change the rules that much. What we did do is we, we cleaned up the presentation. And um, so I, I, mean, I guess maybe like a 1.1 or a 1.2 or something uh, kind of makes sense. The, uh, the player's guide and the game master guide that are coming out, those are going to provide more clarity and more options for the rule set. None of it's required. None of it's mandatory. Like we're not, we're not adding more rules that you must know in order to play the game. We're just providing more options that partly because Nathan, um, has gone on to develop five or six other versions of the game for other intellectual properties and had all these cool ideas that he's developed along the way and found a way to kind of like retrofit them to Star Trek, right? So he's got lots of cool ideas that he's done in other game systems that he thought would fit into Star Trek. And so we're like, we're going to throw them in to the player guide and the game master guide as options and say, hey, game masters, guess what? If you've played, you know, Dune, here's this whole house system or whatever. And we, we think we'll, we think it, it could work for Star Trek if you want to. So, you know, try it out, see if it works. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if we'll do a second, an actual second edition. Um, but we've certainly talked about possibly, um, how do we like streamline it even further? And there's some guidance in the, in the upcoming, uh, uh, player guide and game master guide about how to like start with the absolute basic task resolution and then, you know, add on from there if you want to. And we, we provide some guidance that way and, and hopefully that'll be enough. And we'll just see how how the fandom re- reacts to that, and then we'll we'll modify our plans accordingly. 
um, for now. But I mean, if, if you were to ask, like, or in fact, you did ask, are we doing a, are we doing a second edition? I would say no, not not anytime soon because we don't we just don't feel like it's critical. Like it's, the system itself isn't broken, although certainly there's a, sec, a subsection of the fan base that will say it's you know hopelessly broken. But yeah, that, that's partly because you can't please everybody, right? Like some people really want more from the game than it's it was designed to do. And that's okay because like not every game can be everything to everybody. And so we just were focusing it on what it does well. And that's deliver Star Trek to the, to the game table. All right. So for all the hardcore fans listening now, I think this is what they're really waiting for. Jim, what are the new releases planned for the rest of 2021? And if you want to tell us anything about 2022 and beyond, feel free to, of course, but uh, <laughs> what do you guys have coming out right now in the near future? Sure. So literally like two weeks ago, we just released the Shackleton Expanse campaign guide. And that is uh, that had its genesis in the Living Campaign, which is what we did way back when the game first launched. Uh, we did uh, some playtest adventures, and then uh, I think I mentioned at the at the top of the of the um, interview that uh, Dayton Ward and Scott Pearson put together this this outline for a uh, for a more detailed campaign, uh, setting it in a section of the Beta Quadrant that CBS told us you know go crazy, do whatever you want with it, and so we called it the Shackleton Expanse. It's this section of space that has some strange gravimetric and tetrionic readings in it. There's some strange scientific things that are happening in this sector of space that are unusual and strange and worthy of uh, investigation. And um, so we, we, we created this living campaign, which was, which intent was intended to be a, um, we would release an adventure, fans would play it. They would fill out a survey. We would react to the survey and then write the campaign, you know, based on the survey results. And, and it would be this truly living campaign that was being shaped by the players, right, to some extent. But the, uh, so that was our intent anyway. And then the reality kind of hit us in the head of like, just the logistics involved in not just writing and producing adventures on a regular basis, but also getting the feedback and then implementing that feedback into the adventures in enough time that we could actually publish the adventures to get people to, because I mean, plus approvals, right? We had everything has to be approved by uh, uh, CBS, and so we we get rapidly got into this situation where we couldn't write, we we couldn't produce content fast enough for fans to play, and we couldn't react to their survey content fast enough. So it, ultimately, it didn't work out as a living campaign. But we finished the first season of content, and there was like I think seventeen adventures total that we released over the course of the living campaign for free. It's, the stuff is still online for free if anybody wants it. Um, and the, the living campaign started in the original series era. So like 20, 2269, right near the end of Kirk's first, uh, five-year mission or a uh, five-year mission on the enterprise. And then the, the storyline continues into the next gen era, uh, into the 2370s, which is what, what was the default timeline of our game. And it was set in the, set in the Shackleton expanse. And, um, when the first season of it ended in early 2019, we kind of we kind of let it sit for a while while we developed other products, but we always knew we wanted to go back to it, and we had we had a lot of internal discussions about what was that going to look like. Was it going to be like a like a box set, like the you know the classic um, Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms uh, boxes that D and D did, where you know it was like a whole it was like a, a setting and a campaign in a box, right? And you like you grab that box and your player's guide and your game master guide, and you were off and running for years and years of gaming with, with just that box set, right? That was the, that was like what we wanted to do is like, how do we make this campaign setting work? And finally we decided on the, on a book to be the the form factor for it. And then my mandate was to, uh, you know, they told me, okay, we want to do the Shackleton Expanse and the living campaign as one book. 
and you know make it happen <laughs> and so uh so you know my task i just gotten promoted to project manager right so this was uh, the klingon book was my first big project and then shackleton came right after it and um they were like okay so i need to make this a campaign setting and i need to make it a, a an epic campaign as well right so it's not just the setting it's also the 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 adventure thread as well um so you know with the with the shackleton expanse campaign guide that just came out that is Star Trek Adventures. That's our first like big product in terms of like a campaign setting where, you know, the, the quadrant books, you know, you could do some stuff with the quadrant books, but those were really designed to like give you more information about the stuff that's in that quadrant. So the quadrant books will give you new species and new NPCs and new worlds and, and things to, to explore and play with, but they, they're not necessarily setting guides in and of themselves. Whereas the Shackleton Expanse, you know, it, it provides you a ton of detail on the Shackleton Expanse all the strange sciencey stuff that are is going on that you can get your players involved with. Uh, we created a bunch of new species specifically for the Shackleton expanse. Uh, we created um, a bunch of new uh, you know, NPCs and ships and things that you can throw at your characters. We went into a lot of detail on uh, Narendra station. And one of the, one of the kind of the hooks of the living campaign was that the Federation and the Klingons are allies and they decided to build this star base together on the outskirts of the of the Shackleton expanse and and run it together jointly, right? And um, so the Klingons are a big f- a focus of it, and Federation's a big focus, and, and that partnership where they go into the expanse to explore it together is a big deal. And so we made sure to uh, put a lot of detail about the station and the station's NPCs in the book as well, because uh, that's something that we didn't really have an opportunity to do when we were publishing the Living Campaign Adventures. And I wish we had had the means to do it. But so like we were publishing those adventures and we would kind of like touch on the setting a little bit. Like we could, we could kind of like mention some of the, we had, we had the room to talk about some of this stuff, but like, I never had the opportunity to like, here's the station, here's the station statistics. Here's some of the things you can do on the station. Like like we alluded to it a little bit in some of the adventures, but we just didn't have the the page count to make, to really focus on the station. And And so I was like, okay, well, we're definitely doing it in this book. Because now we can present the station, we can present the NPCs, we can present the all the stuff going on in the station, in addition to everything that's happening in the um, in the expanse. Uh, so there's just, uh, I mean, it's, it's a 320 book. It just came out. It's available in PDF. It's available in print uh, here now in the UK. Uh, um, they just got their copies, and then it's on the slow boat to America. Hopefully, it'll get to America by Christmas. But it, that's really we're we're at the mercy of the. Uh, global supply chain issues right now, just along with everybody else, right? Like however long it takes the boat to get from uh, the UK to America. And then I think, uh, I think Chicago is the primary hub for all things <laughs> being shipped. And there's a big um, backlog there. So like however long it takes to get the print books from, from there, you know, from A to B or A to Z, you know, America will get them eventually, but it's available in PDF now and pre-order and all that stuff. Um, and I'm really excited about it because it's, it's been f- really five years in development and uh, but two years of really hardcore development because like a lot of the living campaign got folded into it, but then it's like another 250 pages of all new, all new original content. Um, it's the first product that we've done for the line really. That's mostly original, right? Cause like, like the, all the quadrant books, all the division books, all the um, all that stuff, like we're pulling from Canon and strategically using beta canons, so we can pull on the novels and the comic books and everything else, you know, as long as we're careful and we're respectful of the property. Uh, so we drop in Easter eggs all the time for all these different 
um, licensees that are out there. But the Shackleton book is really the first time where we were able to, to fit in original species, original situations, things that aren't even really based on canon. Like we certainly reference canon in events, but we're, we, we just created this whole campaign out of, um, you know, whole cloth for the most part. And um, I, I think there's enough content in there that, you know, if somebody bought the core book, like, like you, if you, if you bought the core book and you wanted to go adventure in the, in the Star Trek universe, but you wanted to do something new and different and not just like, kind of like stick to what's been seen on, on TV, you could grab the Shackleton ex- Expanse book and like between the core book and the Shackleton Expanse book, that would give you years of, of gaming at your game table with your game group. And you would not probably run out of ideas or content because there's just, I, I, I packed that book with so much stuff and my writers did such a great job, you know, just adding so much, um, you know, plot hooks to every single page. And uh, it's just a huge, huge labor of love. And I, you know, so far I'm, I'm gratified and humbled that the response has been pretty positive so far. And uh, hopefully, you know, as people get into it and start reading more about it, I'm eager to hear more about what Easter eggs they're finding and, you know, what, what, what do they like about it? What do they hate about it, et cetera. But uh, so that, that's the big release that we just had. Um, we do have three more coming up, uh, three more major releases. Uh, of course, the Tricorder uh, Collector's Edition box is coming out here pretty soon. Um, partly, you know, it really depends on, on China. I mean, it, it was produced in China. And uh, we're just trying to work out the shipping uh, details now and all that craziness. But that's um, it's a uh, it's a box and it looks like the original series tricorder. So it's got the flip lid and it's got all the components inside it. It has a, a, a rules digest version of the core book, the, the Starfleet car Starfleet core book. And uh, we did a top down rewrite of that one, too. Actually, <laughs> we did it a couple of times. We, we went through the core, the Starfleet core book and we stripped out all the next gen era stuff. We rewrote all the examples to be entirely original series focused. So a lot of the examples in the in the first core book were next gen and DS9 and Voyager. But we rewrote all those examples to be um, original series. Um, and it has the original series layout aesthetics. So like if you open up the book and you look at it, it feels more original series than than next gen. And it's really kind of our love letter to the original series fans, because like we know that like even though the rule set can be used in any era. There is a there is a subset of the fandom that really wants like original series feeling stuff, right? Even though it's the same verbiage or whatever. Um, so we we put the, the digest in there. There's a there's a three part mini campaign uh, that's based in the original series. Uh, there's two packs of crews. There's the the crew of the Enterprise, of course. We we had to take advantage of that, and then we also added the crew of the Lexington. So if a if a new group comes into it and they want to play either the the Enterprise crew or the Lexington crew, or if they want to make their own characters, they can certainly do that. Uh, we created some really cool custom dice. Uh, we did um, Captain Captain Kirk's green, his green tunic, the green and gold one. Uh, we created special D20s with with that color scheme, with the green dice and the gold uh, uh, lettering on the on the on the numbers. And uh, what else is in there? Some some reference cards too, I think. But the, the, I think the idea of that is that uh, it's the world's first wearable RPG. Like it's, it's actually got a strap and stuff, so you can put it on like a a classic tricorder. Um, but so that's really, like I said, it's our love letter to original series fans. Uh, again, it's the same rule set as, as in the other two core books. So we didn't change any of the rules to make it, you know, TOS focused or anything. Uh, it's just, um, you know, just a different aesthetic and a different feel. Hopefully fans will dig it. Um, I, I'm looking forward to finally seeing it in, in, in person. Cause I've only, I've only ever seen it in PDFs and pictures. And I'm really kind of curious to see how it all comes together. 
Um, so beyond that, uh, the other two big releases that we're doing are the Player's Guide and the Game Master Guide. And those are going to be really interesting. I'm, I'm really curious to see how those hit the the market because we kind of tried to we try to please both worlds, right? We're trying to target them primarily at new fans. So like if you're if you're new to Star Trek and you're new to Star Trek RPGing and you're curious about the game, we provided uh, content in both of the books about like here's what here's what we think Star Trek is all about, and here's what we think Star Trek Adventures is all about on like a high level, right? Like here's what's Here's what you can probably get from the game or what the ideals of the game are. Here's what we think the ideals of the actual franchise are. Like here's what the, the Star Trek ethos is and the, and the, and the, um, you know, the core conceits of Star Trek. Here's what Star Trek is. Here's what Star Trek Adventures is. You know, here's uh, the primary settings that you can play the game. Here's different tones that you can put into the game. Here's the different styles of play, like whether it's, uh, you know, all kinds of different styles of play. Um, and then we just packed them, we, we packed them full of optional rules too, right? So for players, there's just a ton of new character options. There's new talents, there's new character roles. Uh, there's a lot of rules, uh, clarifications and explanations. There's discussion about how to, how to run an effective session zero with your group and like have that, have a conversation about what are your, well, I mean, obviously we talk about safety rules and, uh, and, and consent and all that stuff, but also like, you know, when your group comes together and you want to run a game, you want to play a Star Trek game, what does Star Trek mean to your group? Like, have that conversation. Because, you know, at this point, with the franchise being 55 years old, Star Trek means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And, like, you t- you take any game master and a group of players and says, hey, we're going to run Star Trek. Everybody at that table might have a different impression in their head of what Star Trek is, right? And so just having that conversation, that session, I mean, this is true for any game, right? But if you have that session zero at the beginning and say, okay, here's what Star Trek means to us. Let's agree to that and then go off and have fun with it. Um, so, yeah, so hopefully the, the, those are the like the four big releases. And like I said, uh, we wanted to space those out over the course of the year, like in a, kind of like a traditional publishing <laughs> manner. But just because of COVID and just other challenges, they all got pushed and pushed and pushed to the point where like Shackleton just came out. And we've got the, the tricorder set and the, the two, the two guides coming out here, hopefully by the end of the year. And so we got this glut of products at the very end. And it, you know, I was joking with the fans on social media for like the last year or so. Cause like I, I saw this coming, you know, back in November, December last year. And I was like, okay, you better start saving up your Latinum, start saving up your money now, because in, in the end of 2021, we're going to have so many products coming out that you're not going to be able to keep up. <laughs> That's definitely a lot of stuff here. And uh, yeah, I just got to ask you, you know, I know you were very, very sociable with the fans. You interact a lot with them and you've been doing that for years. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so you hear a lot of fan feedback, I'm sure, but uh, maybe there's something you could tell us about today, perhaps thinking forward. Uh, what is something that the fans have been requesting for a long, long time that maybe they'll be seeing soon or, or something that you would like to do also that they've been requesting? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I've talked about um, a lot, you know, I've been a Star Trek gamer for a long, long time and, and I'm really well plugged into the fan base, not just as a Star Trek gamer, but also as the product manager, of course, blah, blah, blah. Um, but like, I know what I want at my game table, right? I know what I, I want a Starships book. I want a mirror universe book. I want a time travel book. I want a Romulan product of some sort. I want a lot of stuff. I, I've got a wish list that I maintain on Scrivener here on my computer because uh, I don't have the room for a, um, a if, if I had the room for a whiteboard, I'd have a whiteboard and I'd be doing all the handwriting on it. But um, so my, my whiteboard is virtual and uh, I've got like 90 products on that whiteboard that I want to get to at some point that I want to figure out how do I make it financially viable 
And then how do I sell it to the management team at Modifius to get them to green light it so that I can go off and make it? Uh, so I've got like 80 or 90 products on there that I would love to do. Uh, we have uh, the next you know, two years of products already figured out that we're going to do that we haven't announced yet. Um, other than to say that you know, we, we announced last year that we got the license to Discovery and we got the license to Picard. So we're working on Discovery products. We're working on Picard products. Uh, that's not a surprise to anybody. I mean, they know we got the license. And if you're following the line, you probably have a good sense of what's coming, um, you know, generally speaking, in terms of the products that we come up with. Um, we're working on some other stuff that we haven't announced yet that I can't talk about, but uh, rest assured that a lot of the fan wish list type of stuff that I've seen, you know, it matches my wish list. And uh, I can, I, you know, I can say with some confidence that the stuff that we're working on, fans are going to be very happy about, I think, uh, without, without, you know, dropping any, <laughs> any hints. Um, uh, I will also say that we do have um, one other release coming this year that I haven't talked to anybody about outside of Modifius that I, I hope is a surprise to people, but uh, I don't know. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens, but that's going to be coming pretty soon. And um, um, actually, this is the first time I've told anybody <laughs> about it outside of Modifius. But of course, I'm not, I'm not really telling you anything other than something cool is coming. And uh, I'll be curious to see what the fans reaction is to it when it finally comes out. You're such a tease, Jim. It's like, oh, yeah, here's this really <laughs> awesome nugget. I'm just going to drop right here, but I can't tell you anything yeah. else. I mean, that's yeah, I like, why? Oh, why, Jim? Why do that to us? It's so hard. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm taking it out on the fans a little bit, but like I remember, and this is this is a, a non sequitur, but like in, in in March, you know, it must have been April. Uh, I was working. No, it was actually over the over the over the. No, well, gosh, I, it's all blending together now. It must have been early this year, like March or April. I was I was heads down working on the Shackleton book, and at that point, there was one point where I'd gotten all the manuscripts from the writers. And I'd gotten all the, we got all the art approved and it was about to go into, it was going into layout. And, and like, there was one point where I was like getting everything together, ready to hand off the layout. And I realized like it, like the light bulb went off that I was literally the only person on the entire planet who had read the entire thing from end to end and knew everything that was in the book. And it was like, okay, on the one hand, this is really kind of cool that with 6 billion people on the planet, I'm the only person who's read all of this. That's kind of neat. Uh, but then it, then it, then the immediate next thought was this really sucks because I want to share this right now with everybody. I, I just want to like go onto a, onto a server and just like put all the word documents up and say, look, go get it, <laughs> go have fun. Right. But I knew I had to wait and it was so hard to work on this book for so long. And, and just look, look at iteration after iteration after, after iteration of the PDF as we were working on the layout and the, and the design and doing all the final tweaking that goes into making a product what it is. Um, that, I, man, I, I, was, I was so anxious to share it with people and I knew I had to wait. And it's, it's so frustrating to be in that position where like you, you're working on cool stuff, but you can't share it yet with anybody and you just have to wait and you just have to wait. And then finally it comes out and you're like, oh, now, I, now I'm like the reverse kid at christmas because like i'm giving you know we're giving you all the fans these these books and like obviously you're buying they're not exactly gifts but like it's like look at all this cool stuff we made for you please go do something cool with it and then i get to sit back and i get to watch everybody on twitch and youtube and uh and social media instead of talking about it and doing cool stuff with it and that's that's really the the reward for me is like seeing what you do with it all and and all the crazy amazing things that people come up with um, so yeah, I, I guess I tease them a little bit and I, and I, and I'm like, yeah, you know, save up your Latinum and, uh, um, I'll, I'll make little tweaks here and there, but I, I, I will admit that, uh, 
um, I probably delete more posts <laughs> than I actually actually post because like sometimes I'll be like, oh, should I tease this or should I tease this or no, I can't do that because because like the fandom is smart, right? And of course, we're talking about a a franchise that has its parameters, right? So like if you're if you're paying attention to not just the game but also to the franchise, you know, if, if I drop certain hints. It's going to give away the it's going to give away the the, the surprise right because it because like people connect the dots and be like oh this is what he's talking about or that's what he's talking about and so i, I have to be really careful sometimes about my uh, my hints even though I, I want to be cagey or i want to be obvious about it but uh, uh it, it, it's fun and I, I you know i'm grateful and i don't tell the fans this enough but i'm really grateful that uh they are they are so supportive of the game and and that they're so appreciative of the work that we're putting into it like i know we have our naysayers and I know some folks don't don't like the game and, and are vocal about not liking it. But I mean, that's true for most games, I think. But by and large, the fandom that I've interacted with online is is super supportive of the game and really enjoying it. And I think that's gratifying for me in a lot of ways. Uh, so so thanks to the fans. I mean, I, again, if we didn't have the fan base behind us supporting the game, I, I don't think we'd be doing it, uh, honestly. All right, so Jim, you gave us a lot of information today about Star Trek Adventures, stuff for noobs like me, stuff for the big fans who've been following you guys from year one, so uh, a lot of stuff to take in. But, you know, again, we just talked about the fans, and uh, I'm sure this is going to probably be a part of this answer here for this question, but uh, last thing today, what's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? You know, the the best part about being involved in the Star Trek universe is, honestly, it's, it's trying to build a community that is positive and inclusive and um, really supportive of each other. I think it's, it, it's really kind of hitting at that, that Gene Roddenberry ideal of um, working together toward a greater purpose and going out into the unknown together where like everybody is welcome and everybody is included and, uh, and we can all go forward and do stuff together. I think I, I see that every day with the, with, with the, with the team that I've built and also with the fandom, right? The, the fandom for this game by and large is super inclusive and super supportive of everybody across every spectrum, like what, no matter what spectrum you're on, uh, whether it's, um, you know, uh, sexual or social or uh, gender or um, uh, neuro- neurodivergence or uh, whatever. I mean, everybody's welcome. And uh, it's just amazing to be in that kind of community, especially with the challenges that our, our world has right now, socially and economically and, and everything else. It's just nice that we can actually, we can see people that are actually trying to, to move forward right and uh, and build something positive and uh, i mean i know that for me personally star trek not just the game but star trek as a whole has been a lifesaver for me over like the last five years and i know a lot of people have said the same thing where like if they didn't have star trek to to kind of like hold on to and and see that there's there's hope and positivity and diversity and inclusion and all this stuff it, it, it the, the last few years would have been even darker than they than they have been right and um i just i i'm super excited to be part of that in some way just not just as a fan but actually as a as a content creator helping to to give facilitate all these all these great feelings for people so it's uh it's humbling every day and i'm grateful every day to be in this position i know it's a it's a dream job for me and it would be a dream job for a lot of people i'm sure but uh just just grateful to the fans and to grateful to be able to do this and to just you know create one small little piece of that star trek uh that star trek legacy right and uh it's uh, and, and have some fun along the way. Like I think Pike mentioned that in discovery, like, you know, make sure you have some fun along the way. So trying to have as much fun as we can while we can. 
All right, well, Jim, thank you so much for informing us all about the game, telling us a little about you as well. A lot of really cool stuff. I'm still very scared of the game because it is, like I said, it's it's very scary, big rule book. I think I need somebody to walk me through it one of these days. So maybe sometime we're both in the same coast. Maybe we got to get together and you could uh, help me learn how to actually play this thing person to person. We'll make a whole extra bonus video about it sometime. Absolutely. Happy to. Well, Jim, Absolutely. thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate you uh, you having me on. And thanks so much for everything you do for, for Star Trek and just people in general and uh, really enjoy listening to your show. And I'm, I'm grateful that you had me on. So thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, which is just one word in all those platforms. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or any of those other locations, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating if you can to help show other listeners how much you like this podcast and spread the word. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. If you're enjoying Trek Untold and in a position to financially support the show, I hope you consider being one of our Patreon supporters by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can help us out for as low as $2 a month and get some pretty sweet perks. Shout out once again to Triple Fiction Productions, who you can check out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you're a collector of Star Trek toys in any size or scale or enjoy prop replicas, you're going to love the quality of their 3D printed products, and I'm sure you will be a repeat customer. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, send an email to me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope you'll beam up again with us next week for another episode of Trek Untold. So until then, I'm Matthew. Thanks for listening. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.